Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Welcome to the Victorious Souls podcast with me, your host, Danielle Burnock, that lady on the internet who loves you, connecting you to the love that heals so you can love yourself from survive to thrive. And today I have on my show, Reverend Cheryl Kincaid. She is a Presbyterian minister, an author, and a trauma survivor. She has facilitated support groups for women survivors of abuse, and she's passionate about bringing clarity and understanding to women. Thank you for being on the show with me today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So I know your trauma started early um, mm-hmm. and it's really intense. I know we don't want to get into any specifics because I don't really get graphic on my show or anything like that. But yeah. you, it was the part that I heard so far was from the age of six, but I imagine it started even before that. So tell us a little bit about your early years and what happened in your home. Yeah, it started fairly young. Um, and because our family was violent, not just alcoholic and violent and, and borderline, um, houseless, we, we moved mm. from place to place get, to get wow. away from bill collectors because all those things played. I, I suffered a lot of depression. Mm. Um, I don't remember a time when God wasn't in my life. I will say that, but I didn't know what it meant to know Jesus as Lord and Savior until age six. And that's when I had a a direct encounter with Christ. But I prayed. I I had the sense that somehow I was on God's radar. How did you have that? Did had you gone to church or had neighbors or just innately off and on? Yeah, we went off and on to church. Um, Being the family that we kind of were, my dad would use the church to buy groceries and such. So yeah. So, but you know. As a minister, people come to my door now, and I never forget when Cheryl was little what it meant to her. Mm-hmm. Even if the if the gentleman or the woman is intoxicated, I I, I try to give them groceries mm-hmm. uh, because it meant something to us. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we w- we went off and on to church, and I think both my parents had a faith, but their addictions over um, drowned the faith out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but I certainly think we can close the door on Jesus knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. Revelations 3.20, we need to remember, behold, I stand at the door and knock, was written to Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that tells us that we can we can take Jesus out of the room if we want to. Mm-hmm. But um, I think my parents' chaos um, outdrawn their faith. And my mom would have moments of revival. And when she did, she took me to church. Yeah. And we went to church every Sunday. And that was lovely. Um, mm-hmm. But, and I also went to a little Bible club. I remember after, um, after school, mm. um, when I was in the first grade, 
that ministered to me tremendously as well. Wow. When you were six, you really struggled with some things. You had an encounter and you told me that you, at the tender age of six, contemplated suicide. That's just mind-boggling to many people. How would someone so young contemplate that and what happened? Well, my abuse, which was sexual in nature, Mm -hmm. um, the abusers told me, and there was more than one, that it was love. Um, and I had, you know, I was old enough to watch TV and I'd see these movies where people would kiss and be in love. And I thought, so I guess that's what love is. Mm. And I didn't want any part of it. And I had been to church. And so I had heard about heaven and I thought, well, if I can be with Jesus, why not go now? Um, and my parents, this was in the background of my parents having a violent fight where Mm. my dad had kicked our door down. And threatened to take me and my sisters away. Mm-hmm. And um he left at in a drunken rage, but I was left standing on the uh in the middle of the living room, in the middle of our bedroom, not knowing what to do, because I'd gotten up and gotten dressed. And then um I went to the window, thought I would just jump out, but it, it was a third story and I didn't have the guts, praise the Lord, to do it. And I laid down again and I tried to get up the second time and felt this warm hand on my stomach and heard a voice say, God is love. Mm. And immediately I recognized the voice and I recognized Christ in his essence. And it's was the greatest moment of my life. Um, And I, I still recall it when I'm going through something hard, that feeling that God has me in his hand. Um, It's still a wonderful feeling. I wish I could say all the abuse stopped, um, the sexual abuse stopped, but there was other forms of abuse in my family mm-hmm. that I had to endure. But I uh, clung unto God and my family, um, at this time we were involved in a Presbyterian church. Um, in order for me to go to camp, which we couldn't afford, they let me memorize scripture and I devoured the word of God. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It comforted me. And if I memorize a certain amount of chapters, I could go to camp for free. So I did that every year. Um, and I started to develop a gift of teaching and evangelism, which wasn't so welcomed in my denomination at the time. So that was a little bit of a struggle. But I had Sunday school teachers who loved me. And um, I I continued to work toward the goal that I knew that God had saved me for something. Mm. I, I, the scripture... Um, I follow after that I may apprehend for that which Christ apprehended me. I knew mm-hmm. Christ had saved me for a reason. Um, but when I entered my 20s and I was nervous about going to college, I'd be my first generation of going to college. And it was scary. I went to a community college um, and I started to date for the first time. I didn't date till I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I tended to do what statistically women in my position do. I only dated Christians, but I ended up finding Christians who were violent as well. Oh. Emotionally violent and then physically violent. And that's what got me into counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, I I kind of hit bottom in a situation at a at, when I was working as a in discipleship at a church um, with a guy that was just very unkind to me and like used to like to publicly humiliate me okay. and um, went to a counselor and um, I was having nightmares at night. I was hearing bre- someone breathing in my, in my living room and 
my roommates and I thought it was demons and we tried to cast it out. Mm-hmm. But later I learned it was memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a very compassionate counselor that used Psalms 23 and it was even a non-Christian counseling agency at my college to comfort me and to kind of in my mind to hush the, the breathing and to recognize what it was. And when I did, it wasn't as if I ever fully forgot my abuse. I always knew about it, but I just thought it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. But when I realized that it mattered and it was torturing me, it was haunting me, um, I was able to, through a lot of books, David Siemens, um, he, Inner Healing. The other one is Putting Away Childish Things. He's a Pentecostal minister, has written a, some really good books on inner healing. I devoured his books. I got involved in a adult ch- child of alcoholics group. For me, the 12 steps have been very helpful. Even though I didn't have an addiction, I needed someone to parent me. No one had ever parented me. Mm-hmm. So I could learn how to handle my money. So I could learn how to um, to take care of my grooming. So I could, um, so I would learn boundaries with people at work. So I wouldn't tell my whole life story to everyone I met. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that I needed to learn in groups, and and it was very helpful. And um, this whole time, you know, the scripture says that God worketh all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I didn't want to go into all this because I thought, well, if I go into all this, it's going to divert me from this purpose God has called me to, which I knew was to tell people about Jesus. But this whole time, Jesus was driving the Holy Spirit and Christ and God working together, pushing me forward into ministry, um, finding a denomination that wanted to ordain women, um, finding my voice in preaching the gospel. And um, finally... Um, while I was, was training in discipleship, I started to facilitate support groups for women because I didn't want them to feel so alone like I did. Cause there's a lot of Christians, you can find health and healing in the church, but there's a lot of Christians who don't understand abuse and you can be further abused in the church. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> will blame you for it. That'll call it sin. That'll call it demons that come up with all kinds of excuses. And so I wanted to create a safe space where women could just talk about what they were going through. Thank you for that. I want to pause here for our listeners. You've said so much there that I want to like, oh, I don't want to lose this. And I don't want to lose that big (laughs) golden nuggets. Like you were living your life and it was affecting you. And you didn't forget your abuse. We don't forget our trauma. I tell people you don't forget your trauma. Healing of your trauma doesn't make you forget it. It removes its power over you and you regain your power and it matters so you who are listening cheryl discovered that it matters it matters what you've been through you can't just shove it down it will come up you you have to deal with it and then you can go into new places like cheryl has here and then helping others it is so true that in the church they marginalize abuse and trauma I mean, if they spiritualize it, like they tried to cast out your memories, you can't mm-hmm. cast out memories. They are not demons. Everything is not a demon. I do believe there is a devil, but he doesn't live under every rock. There's only one of him. Only God is omniscient and omnipotent. He's just one little thing and so much smaller than people give him power to have. Right. And so much of what we deal with in life is not demonic. It's experiential. 
It's inner healing. It's our soul. It's our mind, our will, our emotions. Like the Bible says to possess your soul with patience. And that's like to regain it back from the ruin that can happen through life and, you know, sin in the original form and all those things. But we can can be redeemed and have new life like you have worked so hard to do, Cheryl. Thank you for what you do for women. Thank you. And and since we're on the subject, let me just talk a little bit about some of the things that um, that the church likes to beat women up with. And one of them is forgiveness. So I want to talk about the difference between forgiveness and denial, which um, oh, I had please to do, please own. do, please do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, I'm stopping here and- to make a note of this for our listeners, the difference between forgiveness and denial. Yes. So, you know, one of the things that survivors are told is that you're suffering because you haven't forgiven. And sometimes they'll go through these prayer rituals where where, where they're almost beat up by a group of women around them, trying to tell them to forgive. Many of us, like myself, who survived the abuse, I was in it for 20 years growing up, and I had to get along with my abuser or he could kill me. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I learned to maneuver myself around him. I And because I lived, one of them was one of my brothers, because I lived with him, of course there was some love there. Because siblings, you have love that surpasses the abuse. So don't tell me that I hate him because I don't want to be with him anymore. Yeah. In order to forgive someone, you first have to admit that they've done you wrong. You have to confess, acknowledge that they've done you wrong. With that acknowledgement should come to knowledge that that person may not be entirely safe. Even Jesus said in the in the Gospel of Mark, for he did not trust them, for he knew their hearts. Uh-huh. You are not required to trust anyone that's untrustworthy. And so so that's and with that and caution is the response of forgiveness. When we forgive, we release the judgment of that person to God. Let Mm -hmm. God punish them. You cannot. No telling them off is going to get them to see their ways. Give that to God. And you um, learn to love them at a distance. But it doesn't mean you trust them and it doesn't mean you reconcile. Denial says the abuse wasn't that bad or maybe it was deserved or even worse, maybe I had a role in it. Mm -hmm. And um, denial um, says, I must, must minister to this person who's hurt me. And that opens the door for further abuse, not only of yourself, but of your children. Yeah. And, you know, God won't hold me accountable for what happened to me as a child because I was a child. God will hold me accountable for the children I put at risk. And remember, he brought a little child in front of them when they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he brings a little child and he says, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. But woe to the world because of its offensive. And then Jesus says this powerful things, but such things must come. And I think there was a cry in his voice when he said that. That's when he said, I know these little ones are going to be hurt, but it would be better. But woe to him through whom that offense comes. For it would be better for them to tie a millstone around his neck and throw himself in the ocean. So I need to protect the children around me. I need to protect my nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to stop the abuse from going on, I have to hand it back. And when I hand it back, it's okay for me to have some 
righteous anger. Anger is not a bad, and I cover that in one of my books. Anger is not a bad emotion. Amen. The prophets had it. That's why they could stand against um, in Malachi and Jeremiah, who weeps over it, the way that they were treating the foreigner and the slaves, God says that he'll take his retribution. Um, there, there was a sense of anger when they were mistreating people that were powerless. Mm-hmm. I can have that anger. That doesn't mean I haven't forgiven. Right. It just means that I'm aware of the sin because mm-hmm. we suffer because we've been abused, yeah. not because there's sin in our life. But because this was not God's plan for us. Amen. And it happened anyway. Amen. That's some good preaching. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anger is not sinful. You can turn it into sin, but it's how you respond to it. In and of itself, anger is just an emotion. It's a sign that you've been violated in some way is what it is. It's evidence. You know, it's your, your body that God gave you telling you, Something went terribly wrong. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I think of the time when someone asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? And Jesus says seven times 70. And that's um, an eternal number, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. It means eternity. And I think what that verse meant is that there's some sins, some violations that are so egregious that we have to spend the rest of our life in the process of forgiveness. Mm We have to go back again and again. And it doesn't mean I didn't forgive the first time. This is another myth that I hear people say, well, if you felt pain, you didn't fully give it to God. I could have given it to God to the best of my ability at the time. But when the pain revisits me, I still have to go back to God and give it again. I still have to go through a sense of God. He's your responsibility. I can't punish him. Yeah. And it's it's a lifelong journey. It's not a one in one-time journey. Right. I love how um, the author of The Shack Mm. words forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the other person's throat. I just love that because, you know, you get so angry, you just want to like choke them. And it's letting go of that. It's it's letting God be the one in charge of that. And we have so much to learn in our journey to care how they feel, but we need to take care of ourselves first. You know, we, we can't, we have to love ourselves so we can love other people. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And you have to have it to give it. So you have to start there and then you learn and you grow and it's a process over and over and you get better and better and better and better. (laughs) So in your journey, you went through a lot of different things. What hurt you along the way in your healing journey? Like them trying to cast out your memories would probably be one of them and what helped you along in your journey i mean because you have a lot of the churches in there and some of it's good and some of it's not so good so can you help us separate those two things out to help people go oh i don't have to do that oh that's good (laughs) you know the people that have helped me the most growing up were people who just loved me because i was a kid and um I remember the, a couple of teachers being very angry because this is in the 60s and they knew abuse was going on and there wasn't a lot they could do. It was before the rise of child protective services. Um, and there were people in my church that loved me because I was a kid. The people in my church that encouraged me to go to college when I just didn't feel like I had anything going for me. Um, the people that I remember there was one lady after I I went I joined a theater company where where 
um, someone had taken the money my church had given me and, and diverted it to pay something else. So I was that I was without anything to live on. But mm-hmm. I remember I was selling Avon after that. And there was this <laughs> one lady and I just I, I think about her often. She would um, every Tuesday she would come home and she'd make me cookies and, and milk and we'd sit and tea and we'd sit there and she would um, buy stuff, even though I don't think she could afford to buy the things because she wasn't rich herself. And she collected things of the local um, junior colleges and gave it to me. Wow. And she prayed with me. And she was like, you can't continue to do this. This isn't a real living. You know that. And I wasn't open to it at first. But eventually, mm-hmm. she, she and some people at church were the reasons I went down and registered for classes. Mm-hmm. She was just a Christian lady. Um, she couldn't do, I love that. And, um, his high, my utmost for his highest is a statement in that book that says, I can't do everything, but I can do some things. And the some things I can do, I will do. I think she could see me and she couldn't do everything for me, but she could do this one thing. Yeah. She could have me in for cookies and she could um, give me the information on the local colleges and just have the courage to say to me, I don't know what's everything going on in your life, but you're, you're going nowhere when you shouldn't be going nowhere. Um, and so, yeah, there was people that really helped me. Jesus himself helped me. Um, my, I remember once when I was a girl in the midst of my family abuse and I had, I took my sisters, I worked at the church nursery one night and I had enough money to take my sister to the zoo. And I came home and I was really exhausted um, and I fell asleep and I had this wonderful dream and I'm so glad God gave it to me. And um, I was in our church fellowship hall and I'm a little girl. And so I'm running around and suddenly um, I realize we're in heaven, but I can't see Jesus. So I think I got to find Jesus. Mm-hmm. And all I can see is all these grown up stomachs because I was little in the dream. <laughs> um, and I thought maybe he doesn't know me. Maybe I didn't pray the sinner's prayer right. And I ran up to the stage. There was a stage in our fellowship hall and Jesus was moving a table with a bunch of, um, of the church elders. (laughs) And he turned around and he said my name and it wasn't Cheryl. It was another name. And it was a name that went right down to the depths of my soul. And I knew God knew me and he knew what I was going through. And I woke up from that and I carry that with me. If you listen to, um, our video of our church, we have a time in the Presbyterian church where there's, where there's a confession and assurance of pardon. And we have a song in our assurance of pardon called, I will change your name that mm-hmm. we sing every Sunday that people tell me it ministers to them so much because it reminds them that God knew their name. Mm-hmm. It's things like that, that I take into my ministry that yeah. um, God healed me by saying, I knew your name he didn't take all the obstacles away. There was a lot of hard things still to face that I had to get through, but I got through them all um, because I knew that God knew who I really was. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Knows your name. Mm -hmm. Wow. But it wasn't your name that you're called by. That's so intriguing throughout scripture. He changed many people's names or gave them special names. And um, a mentor of mine, he wrote a book called your secret name talking about, you know, God knowing you and, and speaking to that depth of 
your heart of your life. And I legally changed my name in my journey. So God helped me with that. So names are really powerful. They carry, they carry the power to speak over us. Lots of meaning, huh? Yeah. So, but I went on to uh, another thing that helped me was just a realization when I was in a car accident Mm. um, and almost died. I was studying Mm. to be a therapist because I thought that's what God was calling me to be. And, um, I realized that I wanted to preach the gospel because as a therapist, you do have to be non-directional and I didn't want to be non-directional. Um, so being, I still walk with a limp, but being, um, in that car accident helped get me in seminary, um, helped me graduate from seminary and, um, find my call. How did it do that? How old were you? Oh, well, this was in my thirties when in the car accident, I was 33, um, and there was a couple of things that it did. Um, well, I was going to, I won't mention the, the, the denomination names. I was going to a church where the, um, denomination didn't believe, even though this denomination had women preachers, the particular church I was going to that I was very committed to did not believe women should teach or preach. Um, and when I was in the car accident, the person who hit me was the granddaughter of someone in the church. And the pastor kind of took advantage of the situation. He, I needed a lawyer and and I asked him if he'd help get me a lawyer. And he got a lawyer that kind of signed away all my rights. Um, and, and made me responsible for the hospital bills. And so it was being, what hurt me was that all my life, I felt like I was treated different because I was one of the poor girls of church. And once again, even though I was involved in a full-time ministry and I was admired, the bottom line is that this this girl who didn't go to church, she was connected to a rich family. And so they were going to protect her. Mm. It was painful. But what happened is almost dying as I I um, realized I wanted to preach the gospel. And I realized I was going to have to leave the church because I needed to I needed to pursue a lawsuit. It was the right thing to do. But I needed to find a church that ordained women if I was going to preach the gospel. So I think, I don't think if that car accident would have ever gotten me out of that church, Mm. I was that tied to it. And um, it sent me back to the Presbyterian church. Um, I had some rough times. I've already shared that with you. I had a a case of sexual harassment. And I have to say as much as I had people who condemned me in that, I had many people who stood up for me. So you can't say the church is one way or the other. I mean, there's a lot of misogynism in the church and there's a lot of love and healing in the church. Right. You can get both. But I had, I had ministers stand up for me and be, because this man was going to make sure I was never ordained. But I had other ministers who said, nope, she is clearly called to Christian service and we're not going to let you stop her. That's awesome. You're reminding me of Joyce Meyer who oh. had people try to keep her down and not let her preach because she was a woman. She was kicked yes. out of her church, but then she had other people that came alongside her to help. I and mean, she has a, they gave her a honorary degree from someplace because of just her giftings and what's in her. And mm-hmm. like the, the word says that your gift will set you before Kings and that, and then the Lord is doing that with you. Yeah. And that's, that was the great, the great joy, I think, of, of of some of the trials I've gone through um, is is seeing God work out the other way. Um, and so, you know, I started to write my books. Wrote it, I wrote Hearing the Gospel Through Dickens, A Christmas Carol first, because I wanted to talk about how we tend to bias against the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Ebenezer means the Lord has brought me thus far in Hebrew. And in my book, I, I make the prep, the argument, the historical argument that each of the four um, spirits represent a lesson in Advent. Hmm. Um, that, that Scrooge had to get his house because the whole idea of Advent is you prepare your house for the coming of the Christ child, that you won't turn him away. And Scrooge had to get his house in order. But I did want to write about the abuse, but when I was praying about it, um, that was the book that God laid on my heart first. And then, you know, the other books followed. And the the last two are just about growing up in foster care um, because I worked in foster care and I was in foster care for a short time as a child. Mm. And about finding empowerment. One of the things women told me when I facilitated my groups is that they were tired of books coming out about women who were abused that either presented the woman as a prostitute or as a, as someone who was psychotic or someone who couldn't be trusted. And they didn't, or, or someone who accepted Christ and the abuse stopped. They didn't present a picture of a Christian girl trying to be a Christian, and this is in her life. And that's what Carrie Thorne was about. That's That was the first book I wrote. Um, it was about a Christian girl like myself, who had love for both her father and her brother who were abusing her, but knew the abuse was destroying her mm-hmm. and didn't know how to get out. And it's also about the church struggling mm-hmm. with what do we do? And um, we have two pastors in both the books, Pastor Will and Pastor Mike. And I purposely, because now I'm on the other side of this, um, as as someone who wants to report, but... It's not easy when you know sometimes reporting can sometimes make things worse. But it's about these pastors, but I think you should report anyway. I will say that. But um, these pastors are struggling with, they wanted that one prayer and Carrie's life to change her. And then they realized, no, there's a lot of things that God has to work out in her life. Um, in the Philippians, we're told, work out your own salvation. The Azozo, salvation means wholeness. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that works in you both to do and to will his good pleasure. So God's working, and we got a job to do, too. Yeah, we have to cooperate. It's not all God. We're not little puppets. Not one little prayer, like you said. Not one little prayer is just abracadabra going to make it all magically fine. Like we talked about a little bit earlier, they wanted to cast out your memories. Well, your memories are something that you have to work out. Renewing our mind is a process. You know, our brain is a supercomputer. We need to reprogram it. We need to cleanse it from the things and put new things in, like planting a new garden, you know, that kind of thing to make your insides beautiful like that. Yeah. And so um the and that's what that's what the books are. They're they're basically saying talking about in the second one, A Forgotten Door Called Home, we deal with, there's two girls in it, Laloni, who's from Hawaii, and Carrie, who's from, um, who's from California, and they both meet up in foster care. Um, but Laloni goes to live with her aunts because her, her father, um, dies in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And it's about her aunt's faith journey and, um, her grandma Aniki's faith journey. And the trauma that she experienced, and I went ahead and talked about in missionary schools, because there's a legacy there we need to look at. Mm. The trauma that she faced in legacy schools. And then about Carrie finding, she's reunited with her mom in the first book, 
But in the second book, she's trying to figure out how do I live with this woman, mm. knowing that she's an alcoholic. And she has alcoholic tendencies. I'll say that she's, she's chronically codependent. Mm. And, so I, and it's called a forgotten door called home because both of them are young women, women. And when you're young women, you start to make your first home, whether it's in an apartment by yourself or it's with a spouse, you start mm. to create the sense of home. Sometimes survivors of abuse don't know how to create safe spaces. Yeah. And so the second book's more about how to create a safe space. So how do these women learn the principles to create a safe space? Wow, that's great. Because they do. If someone doesn't grow up in a safe space, they don't even know what a safe space is. Yes. Sometimes people don't know that they have suffered trauma because all they know is all they know. They don't know that something else was even an option. Yes, that's true. So thank you for writing these books to help empower women to go through instead of just having this, you know, candy coated instantaneously thing because we, we, we walk through life. And Jesus said that in the world, we would have tribulation. He does not the ordination of all the crap in the world, but (laughs) he said, be of good cheer. I've overcome. So he will never leave us. He will be with us through the whole thing. And there's an expectation when you read the Bible that God expects his beloved to overcome. Blessed are those who overcome. It says again and again in the Bible. But we have the power in Christ to do that. And that's, um, and he accepts our, our, our scars and our wounds. I think sometimes Christian women go away to some healing retreat and they have a spiritual experience and praise God for that spiritual experience. But they think they're completely healed. But what I like to tell survivors is this. You don't have one wound on you named rape or incest or molestation. You have a bunch of wounds. You have a bunch of sores. Some of them have to do with money. Some of them have to do with um, safety. Some of them have to do with romantic relationships. And Jesus is going to heal each one. So if you have a spiritual experience and then you come home and you feel the pain again, it doesn't mean God didn't do a work. He was working on one wound. But there's a couple more that he still wants to work on. So be open to that as well. Yeah, we're like an onion, you know, all the different layers of it. And I had to learn that. One of the things I struggled with was self-condemnation for many reasons. But one was I wasn't healing fast enough. I thought I should be better. I thought I should be better. Like you were talking, they went to this one thing. I should be fine, right? Yeah. But I didn't know any better. So us talking about this is like, no, it is a process. It is a process. Learning is a process. Healing is a process. If you skin your knee, it takes a process for it to heal. <laughs> it is. And it's a, and you'll still have memory of the pain now. And then it's not as if we wake up and we don't have any memory. You have memory of the pain, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Cause you get to use it like Jesus did. You know, one of the, The most wonderful thing I love about the resurrection story, besides Christ erasing my sins on the cross, but Jesus comes back to visit the disciples. If you think about it, Jesus could have had in heaven a facelift and a tummy tuck. He could have been made perfect, but he comes back and he keeps his scars. Philip uh, has doubt. Thomas has doubt. And Jesus shows him his scars. We serve a God with scars. We serve a wounded savior still. I love the song, He Lives. I serve a wounded Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living no matter what men may say. Christ um, scars 
shows us that he suffered too. Yeah. And he didn't remove them. Yeah. He kept them. And he kept them as a witness to us mm-hmm. that when we're wounded, even if we have a 100% healing, which I don't think anyone gets on this earth, we will get it in heaven, but not here. We still will have scars, but that's okay. Jesus' scars glorify him and Christ will be glorified in your scars as you give them to him. Yeah. Scars are not bad. It's interesting about scars because there's certain circles where scars are like a show of manhood. Like men are like, oh, look at my scar. Look at my scar. (laughs) It's like this big thing. And it's this, you know, it has that one way of presenting itself. But then there's the other ones where we feel ashamed of those scars. But scars are just evidence of what has happened in our life. And I remember being told before when someone pointed out what you just did about Jesus didn't get rid of his scars. He could have got rid of his scars, but he didn't. I think in my head before I'd heard someone tell me that, I thought of that in heaven. He came and I remembered him, you know, look at my wounds with Thomas and all that. But somehow, you know, we, we maybe we fairy tale it in our head because we, we, I believe we as humans crave perfection. I believe we crave perfection because in the initial creation, we were created perfect. (laughs) But then we don't have that anymore. And then those are those that pretend they have it and are going to get it by their own works. But Jesus said, I get it. You're not perfect. There's no way of getting that. That, that, that's like gone. Here, I have perfect for you. And he came and he fulfilled everything and handed us perfect as a gift. So that whole thing, the mentality of perfect and scars is like, oh, it's not perfect. There's something wrong with it. I remember something happened with one of my kids and they got a scar. And I remember beating myself up so badly. I felt like I had marred my child for life. I was It was just awful because of the trauma I hadn't healed of yet. But it's like, no. They're part of life. They're part of life. And just like those guys are like, oh, look at my scar. I got the one I got hit by a motorcycle or, you know, whatever I'm going to come up with. We can use it to tell our story. Yeah, I have this scar here. Do I hear the story? (laughs) (laughs) And we can we can talk about, you know, what we've been through and how God healed us. I mean, it's an opportunity for us to be able to tell the story. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul does that all the way through the book of Acts and all his epistles. He talks about he was the least worthy because he persecuted the church. I think Mm -hmm. he had some trauma there, too. And it's thorn in the flesh. So we see the people of God, you know, that's that's how they share their faith. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we we are being in the process of being made whole. And why we do it, we take someone else with us. (laughs) You know, (laughs) amen. Loving people into wholeness, like that lady that made the cookies for you. <laughs> yes, yes. And it was in some ways such a small thing, but such a great thing in my life. Oh, love is never small when it's real. Amen. Amen. Love is never small when it's real. When we feel it and we feel that love, it's huge because we know when it's real. We feel when it's real. Even like when you were told as a child, this is love and they were abusing you, something inside of you new different though you probably couldn't verbalize it or explain it but something in you went this feels not like that (laughs) i don't kind of like believe you 
<laughs> but you know, we're little, we can't verbalize. We don't understand. We have these child brains that we, we were like unbaked cupcakes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what but, would you say to our listeners, if there's any of them who have been through trauma, whether they acknowledge it or not, that struggle with their faith, with believing God that, you know, why did God let this happen to me? Or why do I have trouble growing? I tried doing all these things and I still this. How can you encourage someone in their faith, someone who has suffered from trauma? Well, we've talked about process. Let me, there's two questions there. One is how, how did God have let this happen to me? And I want to tell you a story about something that happened when I was in between calls um, I had left one church and I was waiting and it takes a long time for a minister to be hired. So I had to go back to work in Kelly services where we were grading tests on computers. And next to me, there was a, a man who found out I was a minister. That's why he sat there. And um, I, it turned out he had been to desert storm. Mm. And so once the computers went down and he said, you know, and he started to tell his story that he had been the desert storm. And then he said, you know, when I was, when I was in Desert Storm, he said, when we first went out, there were, there were all these baptisms and all these battle conversions and, and the press was out to see it all and it was wonderful. And he says, but once we got there and things got violent, people started to doubt God and they started to wear little signs on their heads saying, where's God? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, and that's the important question. And I thought he was asking a rhetorical question. So I, so I kind of went back and nodded and I said, yeah, that is an important question. And he says, no, I want to know. And he said it really loud and it quieted the whole room. And, um, and the woman said, the computers are up, but I'll let you answer the question. And I was really nervous because the whole room was listening, but I told him something that I, that God has taught me because there is a mystery to suffering that God is in the healing. He's not in the offense, but he's in the healing. Mm -hmm. And I said, if indeed, if indeed there was no God and what happened to you was random and what happened to the children you saw was random, you'd say, oh, they just weren't the strongest. That's why they didn't survive. The strongest survived. But you have a morality inside of you that says, no, what happened to them was a violation. It was wrong. That's the knowledge that there's sin in the world. God's in the redemption of sin. He's not in the sin. The book of James tells us most specifically that when it says that every good and perfect gift cometh down from God, the father of lights, be not deceived. God cannot tempt anyone nor is tempted by anyone, but every good and perfect gift comes down from God, the father of light. So the first thing God's in the healing, he's not in the sin. Where was God at the moment? I don't know. I don't know why God allows sin on this earth, but I do know that there's nothing that can happen to you that can thwart God's purpose in your life. Life can still be good. It can still be wonderful. You can still laugh until your stomach hurts. You can still <laughs> go out with friends and, um, and go to dinner and talk into the late night. Satan cannot steal away the total goodness of God. I've often wondered if I didn't get married because of my abuse or whether I was called completely to the ministry. And I've agonized over that. And then one day I was sitting in church. It was almost time to preach. And I got the answers like, what does it matter? 
know, whether you were single just to preach or single because the abuse, you're single and you're having a great time serving me. That's the second thing I want to tell them. Enjoy the gifts of today. Don't let the scars of yesterday drown out the love of today. Yeah, don't let that question. It's like the question was bringing the misery when you were just fine without it. Yeah, and you can say, well, I didn't have kids because the abuse, but what's the good things you have now instead of kids? Or maybe I lost this relationship because of the abuse, but what's the good things you have now, even though you lost the relationship? There there are things that we, abuse steals from us, but there are great joys on the other side that God gives us. So I, again, nothing can thwart God's plan for you. You can still have a wonderful life in Jesus Christ and you can have a good life. I've come that they might have life and may have it more abundantly, but you do have to grieve the past. You have to pass back what happened or you'll find yourself at even that point of denial and not forgiveness, but denial. You'll find yourself still trying to minister to an abuser or your abuser. And you'll find men who are like your abuser and you'll be in the same situation So you've got to let yourself get angry at your abuser. And I know that might not be something that you expect a Christian minister to say to you. But let me tell you, that is the biggest guard that you'll have against being abused again. If you're attracted to someone like your father or someone like someone who abused you is to say what a, um, a woman who's never been abused. If someone invades her space, she, she immediately is startled and she backs off and she gets in their face, like get away from me. Someone who's been abused, when someone gets in your place, space, sometimes we shut down. We think, what can I do to get away from him? But I don't want to get him angry because he might hit me. Mm. And we don't have that anger to come up to protect us. Mm. Now, we may learn it by taking the subway, which I did learn by taking the bus at night. And I learned it from watching other women. Mm. But where other women may have, and men, have the ability to say, back off. Or when someone insults them to say, you can't talk to me that way. Survivors of abuse don't have that. And they need to learn it. This is why I get annoyed at churches that want to jump immediately to forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of survivors think that forgiveness is ministering to the abuser. You have to be let yourself get angry. Angry is a part of it. That's that's amazing. That's a powerful part of today's interview. I just want to make sure I highlight that in my show notes and everything, because it is anger is not sinful. Anger is righteous. Anger is evidence that something is wrong and to it's okay to have that anger and even invite it when it's been shut down and it's lost in there and you have to find it again so that you can go through that healing process. Yes. So before we tie this up a little bit, is there anything you want to make sure our listeners know? I mean, we talked about the denial and about the anger. These are just so powerful and how it's not just instant and process. Oh, we have so much gold in today's interview. <laughs> Good. Well, just that my website is RevCherylKincaid.com. You'll find all my books and some of my sermons and my blog on there. And um, the other one is DickensAndChristianity.com which tells the story of Charles Dickens. I'm on Amazon and Barnes and Noble as well. And are you on any of the social medias either for people to reach out and connect? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. You can at author CK um, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Okay. Um, And uh, on YouTube as well. You can find me on YouTube 
And our church is Calvary Church. Abuse is often inside my sermons. I use examples of that. You know, this last Sunday, God just ministered to me because I sang a solo. And I, you, I don't know if you remember this solo. It's called For Those Tears I Died. We also called it Come to the Water. It was a song in the 60s that was really big. Um, and I had forgotten so many people had never heard it, but it says, I felt every teardrop when in darkness you cried. And I strove to remind you that for those tears I died. And I was surprised how many people in the church responded about tears that they had cried alone in darkness. Mm-hmm. It reminds me in John chapter one, um, when, uh, Zechariah gives a, a prophecy of his son that the Messiah has come to sit alone to to give light to those who sit alone in darkness mm-hmm. so many people sit alone in darkness and um, it's a great joy for me to remind people that in jesus christ um, he can bring light to that darkness if you're sitting alone and he yeah. even come and sit with you yeah. while you wait for the darkness to pass wow. so that's the great joy of the gospel amen oh Thank you so much today, Cheryl, for what you have shared and being vulnerable and all your golden nuggets of light, light in our walk with Jesus. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. And listeners, thank you for being with us today. Reach out to Cheryl. When she ministers, you get copies of her book. Until next time, remember, I love you. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.